Hey, you're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network, produced at 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country. And I'm Nikki Stott. This week on the show, part one of a two-part series envisioning radical futures with young intersectional climate feminists. And this audio was sourced with thanks from a Climate Week 2020 webinar by the global advocacy organisation We Do at wedo.org. To start us off, I'd like to quote Arundhati Roy, who reminds us that another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. And just for some grounding introductions and context setting, the climate crisis has raged around us in increasingly violent ways, compounded by the systemic violence of white supremacy and the global pandemic, from catastrophic wild wildfires to hurricanes and oil spills, we are witnessing the devastating effects of centuries of extraction, harm, exploitation, and inequality at the hands of colonialism, patriarchy, and capitalism. In the midst of climate crises, there are, of course, many who have always been and are calling for a reckoning. It has become increasingly evident that young feminists are at the forefront of the climate justice movement. And I think as, as young climate feminists, we bring together systemic analyses that always foreground justice, they foreground intersectionality, they prioritize coalition building and solidarity. And we understand that the roots of cis patriarchy, climate change and environmental injustice, they lie in colonialism and capitalism. And for this exact reason, we work at the intersections of diverse movements, across movements, and among them, understanding that at their core, these are all deeply intertwined. And by grasping at at the root of climate and gender injustice, young climate feminists offer alternatives to the extractive violent systems that shape our current realities, building and imagining transformative worlds that actually do center care, they center hope, they center community, they center relationships, and they center liberation. And we know that any global feminist climate justice movement must heed the leadership of feminists from the global south, of feminists um, who are Black and Indigenous, and of young feminists. Yeah, and as you can probably tell, we are your moderators for today. My name is Andrea. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a Dominican climate and environmental justice advocate working on communications and global advocacy at WeDo, and I'm currently based in Brooklyn, New York. And I'm Mara. Um, I'm an Irish-American feminist climate writer an organizer and feminist, always trying to be better at all of those things, working on policy and advocacy with Andrea, also based in Brooklyn. And in our work at the Women's Environment and Development Organization, we do for short, um, we're fortunate to work in collective with powerful visionary activists from around the world. So I am just so honored to be looking out at this really all-star panel of women who I admire, who I learn from, and who I can't imagine having better people to start off a Friday conversation with. We'd love to actually invite you all to introduce yourselves with anything that you'd like to share into this space. 
as well as something that is bringing you joy. So I'll go ahead and first kick it off to Francis. Hi everyone, so excited to be here this morning. So yeah, my name is Francis Roberts Gregory. I am an eco womanist. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I would say joy. I would say the possibility for transfer political transformation as well as love, people showing kindness to one another through mutual aid, that's giving me a lot of joy right now. Mm, thanks, Francis. All right, next I'll bump to Maggie. Hi, everyone. My name is Maggie Mapundera. Um, I'm based in Zimbabwe, and I work for an eco-feminist alliance called Women African Alliance. And I define myself as an eco-feminist as well. In terms of what's bringing me joy, I would say music. It's been an emotional week in terms of the work that we've been doing. And so, so yeah, music. <laughs> Thanks, Maggie. Sanam? Hello, everyone. Evening where I am, but what a great way to spend a Friday evening. I can't think of any other group of people that I'd be with. I'm Sanam. Uh, in English, I'm all right with all pronouns, as I also speak with uh, another language with gender-neutral pronouns. And right now, what's bringing me joy is being part of this conversation. But I think also over the last few months, what has also been bringing me joy is being in different kinds of community, both online and in person, which includes our Feminist COVID-19 Response Collective, our Feminist Sci-Fi Book Club, the local anti-racism coalition, the neighborhood support group that I joined at the start of the COVID-19 lockdown. It makes me feel both happy and purposeful to be part of all of these and to know that this kind of work exists to build understanding and give support. And thank you for inviting me to be part of this. I'm so excited. Thanks, Sanam. We're glad you're here. Um, next, I'll go to Patricia. Welcome. Hey everyone, um, good evening also from where I'm in now. I'm in Jakarta, Indonesia. Well, uh, I'm Patricia Watimena. I'm originally from Indonesia. I'm an indigenous from coastal living community called Haruku. It is in the eastern part of Indonesia. I'm working with the Asia Pacific Forum on Women, Law and Development. We are based in Chiang Mai, Thailand. What brings me joy is actually really being part of this gathering. It brings me a lot of joy. I think this gathering is really an evidence of nothing can really stop us to mobilize and really speak out as young feminists, you know, to amplify the voices and then our demands. So, yeah, being part of this gathering is, you know, creating such an amazing feeling. I feel a lot of honor to be part of this, of this conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Patricia. And next I'll go to Maria Alejandra. Hey, hello, hola, buenos dias. Um, I'm Maria Alejandra, and I'm quite happy to to share this space with you all and and the, the rest of the panelists. I think I'm I'm excited to see what happens in this conversation and where we get to. I am currently at my family's house in Colombia, and it's a sunny day for a change, which is good. I am currently working and leading the climate and environmental justice work at FRIDA, the Young Feminist Fund. It's a global fund dedicated to resourcing young feminists' initiatives. And what is bringing me joy? I think 
uh, over the past few months, I can, I can see so many of my friends and close community producing their own food, me included, uh, building our own like planters and producing our own alcohol, producing our own sweets, medicine, which I think has been um, a realization for many people in a collective way of how we can be closer to that type of sovereignty. And it's like a crack in the system. So I'm quite happy and joyful to, to see that we can start imagining these types of new dynamics. Thank you. Thank you, Maria Alejandra. And thanks all for introducing yourselves into the space. So the next question I feel like leads us really naturally into thinking through the intersectionality of this work and, and the real positioning that I think young climate feminists in particular have in understanding the ways that, that climate justice and gender justice are so deeply intertwined. And, and even in hearing what you all just spoke to in terms of what is bringing you joy and those connections to this work makes me think about how many different entry points there really are to this work and, uh, and to this intersection that I think we all work at in different ways. So I would love to hear from each of you a little bit about what led you here. What entry points did you find yourself coming through to find yourself here? And what brings you here today? So maybe I'll start with Sanam, is that okay? Sure. Um, uh, for me, it all started with wanting to write and tell stories. And that was something that I, I knew from the time I was 11 or 12 years old. Uh, in fact, I actually studied literature for my undergraduate degree. Um, but then that translated into my first job in journalism and then into doing documentary film work in Bangladesh. And doing that gave me the opportunity to travel all around the country and really see and learn how the landscape, the weather, the agriculture, the animal population in the forest are all changing. So uh, a few years into this, when I moved into civil society and organizing work, which included both the advocacy and the communications work, you didn't have to tell me that climate change was happening or that it was hurting poor communities more or that it was affecting women differently. I'd already learned this and I'd seen how much more work it is for women and girls. One of the sad statistics in Bangladesh is that every time we have a climate disaster, the rate of child marriage jumps up because communities are more vulnerable and that's an extra mouth to feed if there's a daughter who's unmarried in the house. Worldwide, uh, women and girls are the ones who are collecting or pumping water, then carrying it home, boiling it, filtering it, and storing it at home. So once I moved into this activism work and not just climate, but human rights work, labor organizing, I've found myself telling policymakers more than once that the objective shouldn't be to make it easier for women to do the domestic work, the care work. You don't use your uterus to collect the water. So why shouldn't we talk about what we need to do to share work, which is, of course, the principle behind redistributing care work. From lived experience, it's very obvious, coming from a global South country that didn't contribute to the pollution that led to the climate change, and yet that's the country that's going to go under in very in a very short time. In fact, so much coastal land has been lost already. 
So I think, yeah, that's kind of how, like, I feel like I didn't have a choice about it. I, it, was, I, it was where I was and who, and who I was. Thanks, Anam. Thanks for sharing all of that. You're listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. All right, maybe next I'll bump it to Maggie. Is that okay? Actually, similar to Sanam, I also studied literature. And so a lot of my instinctive passion is around narratives and how to disrupt the deeply destructive and, and violent narratives that are taking place across my continent and around the world. And so I think initially, a lot of the work that I was doing was around sex and sexual violence and body, the body as territory and understanding the violations that are happening between people in communities, mainly urban communities. And then I sort of started to work more closely with rural communities that are impacted by mining activities and other big extractive activities and seeing the degree of violence that was taking place on people and particularly on women and also on the land and how communities would often express that violence as very much linked in their experience and understanding of what was going on to them and this entire logic of extractivism, of violence, of destruction, of domination, and how that is playing out on women's bodies and is also playing out on our territories, our larger territories, um, land, forests, water. And so I think, yeah, I became really sort of intrigued and enraged by what I was seeing and what I was hearing and what people were facing and wanted to find a way to support that work, support those voices. So much of that trauma is silenced or erased from this dominant narrative of development, which we are taught to see as good and as something that we should want on the African continent. But actually the reality of it is one of violence and destruction and negation of so many people, of so many histories and of so much. And so that's where my passion comes from and why I'm involved in this work. And like Sanam, denial was never an option. And it's this rage, I guess, that fuels me to continue. Thanks, Maggie. I really appreciate all of that. I, I think I actually also would, would name my entry point as, as sexual violence prevention work as well into this, into this intersection. And I think the, the links between bodily autonomy and fighting for radical futures in which bodily autonomy is not only one, but the right to a livable future, uh, safe from all forms of violence, that connection is so, is so clear. Um, and I think is the entry point for so many feminists who come into this work. Thanks for sharing. Next, I'll, um, I'll ask Maria Alejandra. I wish I had studied literature. <laughs> so just, to, just to join the combo. I didn't, though. Um, I would say that my entry points are various in a way. I grew up very close to rural areas, to the mountains, to the Andes here in Colombia. Always felt a admiration for the wilderness, for the fears of, of nature here that is just abundance. And eventually, as I, and this, this is like, what, 15, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, over the period as I was growing up, I began seeing and understanding much more the already felt effects of climate change, especially in rural and peasant communities, who 
yeah, 20 years ago, just didn't quite understand why were their crops being so diminished, why the rain wasn't coming, and how that translated to their own lives, to the sustainability of their own livelihood, how to carry on just basic living without your main income, without your main possibility of connection with nature. So I think observing those changes in a very quick pace pushed me to study in an academic way a lot of climate, food and environmental policy. I did a lot of research in rural areas with peasant communities, especially rural women who are currently organizing on many fronts, trying to defend land on many ways, trying to get access to land, rights to land, trying to stop extractive industries from entering their territories, while at the same time trying to cope with the unprecedented effects of climate change in these areas. And to me, seeing the resistance of especially these women of youth as well, who resist the fact that they have to leave their space, their environments, their ecologies for another livelihood because the system is pushing them to do so, has been really inspiring and and I think has been key to my own understanding of the role that I can play in uplifting this this work of resistance, this work of creating alternatives and resourcing these new realities. For a long time, I have participated in different climate international spaces, the UN, the Youth Constitution, the Women and Gender Constituency. And I have learned a lot from these spaces, especially how inevitable it is that we need to do work of advocacy, of change, of resistance, of presence and participation in these international spaces alongside a robust, diverse climate justice movement. And at some point, I felt that my journeys in that space have shifted a bit because I have been part, welcomed, invited to the feminist movement, which I I think I'm naturally coming into as a queer feminist, as somebody who also wants to uplift the diversity of bodies and, and bodily autonomy, as you were saying, Mara. And to me, the feminist, young feminist and eco-feminist movement have opened a new way to relate to the multiple crises that we live around us, basically by my observ- observation of myself, by coming back to my body, by, by embodying the sensations, the anger, the fear, the sorrow, the pain of watching what is happening in the world right now and so much pain and so much injustice and seeing how I can transfix it and transform it within myself as well and how the presence of the collective in that process is so key. I have been quite encouraged to uplift the community, the collective, the family behind the struggle and the resistance thanks to the ecofeminist movement. And then lastly, and to close, I am currently, as I said, part of this Young Feminist Fund, which I never thought I would end up in a fund, as always being somebody who's asking for funds and organizing and doing work with other youth. But the work that Frida is doing and so many other really admirable people are doing in this area of philanthropy is quite, to me, it's quite amazing because it's a, it's a subtle way of disrupting the system. 
It's a subtle way of transferring the resources that are needed and that are just to the people who have the alternatives and are at the front lines, not only of impacts, but also on the front lines of alternatives. So that's a little bit of the journey. Thanks, Marina Alejandra. I resonated with so much of that, but I'm especially appreciative of the fact that you brought in not only this notion of the diversity of entry points that so many of us had into this movement, but also the diversity of forms of disruption and work that we do to, to intervene in, in current systems and crises and find our places in, in points of intervention for change and positioning alternatives. So thanks for that. Next, I'd love to pass to Patricia. Um, well, what led me to this work, I guess one simple word would be anger. Um, I think I'm still angry now. <clears throat> angry seeing my own community and many indigenous communities are deprived of their rights to land, natural resources affected because of their environments are is basically destroyed by the current climate crisis and how, how badly affected they are, how corporate blunder and capitalism is actually destroying our communities and the world that we are basically living in. But at the same time, I see hope and that's what keeps me going. And that is, I feel, it is my everyday fuel. Um, hope that actually comes from the resilience, the resistance, the relentless struggles of so many indigenous women in many, many, many corners of this world. They have been challenging the oppressive development and economic system to defend their forests, their natural resources for generations. Like many, many Berta Caceres and Greta Thunberg I met in so many indigenous communities I visited or I lived with, including my own. And yes, again, I guess they are the very reason why I'm here today. Because some of us are actually privileged enough to be able to speak out, either as an indigenous, but also to amplify even just the voices of these people in the community. So again, I think uh, that, that, that those things were actually my entry points and the struggles of the women is actually the fuel that keeps me going. Thank you. Thanks, Patricia. I'm so glad that you started with simply naming a feeling. So often in the climate movement and in this work more generally, folks are hesitant to name the feelings that are driving them and the feelings of how this, these intersecting crises are so embodied um, and they have such affect on our bodies and our feelings and how we are understanding the world and the work that we do. So thank you for naming that. So Francis, I'd love to pass to you next. Yes, so I really, I'm enjoying listening to everyone's stories. A lot resonates with me as well. So where do I start? Uh, I would say that I was a part of this movement before I even knew consciously I was a part of this movement. I am from the east and southeast, northeast of the United States descendant of sharecroppers, field hands, um, folk who are of African descent, displaced and diaspora. And so I actually come from three environmental justice communities, but I didn't realize this until I went to college. So I went to Spelman College and it is an institution, a historically black college and university in Atlanta, Georgia. And it's also one of the few institutions for 
women of African descent in the United States. And so after going to a woman's college, I participated in the women in science, technology, engineering, and math programs. So I was an environmental science major. And I really found that the curriculum was limited in the sense of not focusing on the intersections of different disciplines, but also just like the social dimensions of ecological issues, conflicts, politics. And so I think I was a junior or senior when I actually stumbled across this literature around gender and climate change. And I remember wanting to write my senior thesis on this intersection and being told by the head of the department, who was a man of color, that that was not a worthy topic of study. And that really rubbed me the wrong way. And I eventually uh, switched my major to sociology and anthropology in order to lift up the narratives of women of color and our solutions for environmental energy and climate justice. I should also state that when I was in graduate school at the University of California, Berkeley, I actually facilitated a workshop at the annual Empowering Women of Color Conference and to demystify science and increase the confidence of women in STEM because although a lot of women literally major in biology, chemistry, physics, a lot of times we don't confidently identify as scientists. So that means we don't apply for funding. We self-select out of positions. We're not mentoring the next generation of uh, environmental scientists and climate leaders. So I figured that as someone who's passionate about mentorship, this would be my intervention. Finally, I would just say that over time, due to the influence of different mentors who conduct participatory action research or community-based research, I decided to focus on how women of color in Gulf Coast, Louisiana, advocate for climate justice, but also resist environmental racism. And I became a feminist climate activist myself. And then lastly, back in 2017, I want to say I attended the People's Climate Movement March in D.C., where I was a uh, attendee of a panelist led by We Do, and perhaps We Can as well, where there were indigenous and black women leading the conversation in the United States around climate change and justice. And I was like, this is it, this is what I need to focus on. And then also I attended the Uprose Youth Climate Justice Summit and realized the importance of women of color, indigenous and women of color, mentoring the next generation of climate leaders. So. You know, there's many other entry points, but I'll just leave it there. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. And today on the show, we heard part one of a two-part series, Envisioning Radical Futures with Young Intersectional Climate Feminists. And the audio that you heard today was sourced with thanks from a Climate Week 2020 webinar by the global advocacy organisation, We Do. And you can find them at wedo.org. You can also find today's podcast with information about the moderators and all of the speakers on today's show and links at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. And if you're already listening via a podcasting service, we'd love you to subscribe and why not rate us and give us a review to help spread the word. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their generous support and the Community Radio Network for all their hard work in getting this show out to you. Earth Matters is produced at 3CR Community Radio in Fitzroy Nam, and we can be contacted at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. And you can also find us on your socials. So that's all for today, but don't forget to tune in next week for more environmental and social justice stories.
Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore, giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. Join me to talk about philosophy and dreamtime stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855am. Keep in touch. 3cr.org.au Genocide here is a lot more sneaky than it is in Rwanda or other places around the world. It's one thing whitefellas learnt in the last 200 years to be very sneaky about their genocide. You look at the 38 nations that were here before white settlement and then you count up the numbers that are still surviving, still out there doing their business on their country. Well, there's only 25 left, so what happened to the other 13? Let's talk about the Black GST. Genocide to be stopped, sovereignty acknowledged and treaties made. Tune into Fire First every Wednesday from 11am till 12 midday on 3CR with Robbie Thorpe. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.